Fantasy is a natural human activity. It does not destroy or even insult reason. For creative fantasy is founded on a recognition effect, but not a slavery to it. From an essay on fairy stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Nicholas Kotar, author of fantasy inspired by Slavic fairy tales and seeker after the good, the true, and the beautiful. You're listening to Fantasy for Our Time. In this podcast, I discuss classic and new fantasy media, have long and involved conversations with authors and storytellers, and explore how stories can help us all live a better, more fulfilling life. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to episode 12 of the podcast. Today we're continuing our series, in fact, we're finishing it, our series on violence in media, specifically fantasy media, where we finally ask the million-dollar question, when is the violence we see on screen or read in our books too much? Today's show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. They are the backbone of my work. They inspire me. They keep me creating, even when the craziness in the world sometimes depresses me. And I feel like, what is the point of it all? No, they keep me going. They keep me excited. They keep me inspired. If you'd like to join them and support the show, you can for $2 a month at the least and get access at that low tier to early live streamed recordings, which include exclusive Q&A sessions afterwards. Our community also has higher tiers that include things like free ebooks, merch, and exclusive short fiction written by yours truly. Visit patreon.com forward slash Nicholas Kotar to find out more. And now let's move on to today's show. It's a horrifying reality we're going through. It's not even uh, confirmation bias or recency bias is the one I'm thinking of that makes me think that violence in our streets is getting worse. I don't remember at any point in my life there being such a regular stream of news headlines about mass murders. I don't... I'm not going to take any political position on this. I'm not going to talk about guns. I'm not going to talk about any of that. There's plenty of that kind of stuff going going around in the in the larger culture. Some of it useful, some of it not. If you are interested, I am uh, right now listening to a very illuminating podcast episode uh, on Barry Weiss's honestly about this topic. I'm still uh, wrestling with it, the political topic, I mean, Um, and I invite you to watch it as well. It's a good one. But let's not talk about that. Let's talk about the reality of this kind of violence possibly coming from exposure to violence in media. Because these headlines show up show up every once in a while and then you know they vary in the amount of you know (laughs) hysteria in the tone of the headline, but a lot of them are saying the same thing. There are correlations. Some of them quite easy to make between increased violence in individuals and those same individuals watching violent media. It even even in something as small as this, recently I've seen this popping up on my feed a lot. Sophie Turner, an actress who played Sansa Stark in the Game of Thrones series, and if you don't know, Sansa had a had a particularly brutal character arc in Game of Thrones. Uh, one that was brutal not only because of the of the violence of it, but because it was a violence that took away a rather gentle kind of innocence, even if it was a silly kind of innocence. But it was a, it was a terrible, terrible scene, and must have been a terrible scene to film 
I didn't watch it, but I know that a lot of people were shocked by it being on screen. And she says that she anticipates, which is an odd thing to say, I suppose, but she says that she anticipates having some trauma to deal with in the future because of having to film scenes like that, because of having uh, to to have been exposed to such scenes uh, in uh, in her acting. Now, of course, this still leaves the question of if you act it out, is it any different from sitting in front of the, uh, the of the television screen and watching it? But there are a few things that we can say for sure. We know, and this is from a uh, an article in the conversation. Um, as always, uh, links in the show notes. We know that boys who observe their mother's romantic partner assault their mothers are at an increased risk of committing domestic violence themselves in adulthood. But still, the question remains does viewing violent television as, as a child increase aggression towards women or towards anybody later in life well there is a pubmed article that came out a few years ago that's really quite interesting and here's what it has to say in its abstract i'm obviously not going not, not to read the whole thing but here's what they say they say that uh, media violence possesses sorry poses a threat to public health that that's a loud statement in as much as it leads to an increase in real world violence and aggression Research shows that fictional television and film violence contribute to both a short-term and a long-term increase in aggression and violence in young viewers. And television news violence also contributes to increased violence, principally in the form of imitative suicides and acts of aggression. It goes on to talk about how video games are also a contributor, especially in young men, of violence in the future. Although they do uh, say that there is not as much information uh, to say how much playing those video games will affect them far farther into their adulthood. They do, however, uh, exhibit violent behavior as um, adolescents. So a few things stand out to me in the things that I mentioned here and also in some other things that I've been reading. One is that there is clearly an effect on young viewers of violence. And that effect leads to violent behavior. This is especially true of computer games of a violent nature, especially first-person sh person shooters. Number two, seeing violence even implicitly on the news also leads to violent behavior, and some of that violence is self-inflicted. Three, there is a disturbing connection between sexual pleasure and violence, and some suggestions there are that uh, there are some suggestions that there is an activation of the pleasure centers of the brain for some people when they enjoy seeing acts of violence enacted on screen, even in an imaginative setting. Four, it is unclear to what degree there is a difference between reading an intense experience of imaginative violence and seeing it on the screen. I didn't find much good information on that. And whether one or the other is less likely or more likely to cause violent behavior. So those are some of the things that jumped out at me. But that's still there are still some other things to be considered, some other things uh, to think about. And that is... That, that includes things like this. There was a traditional early Christian condemnation of real-life violent spectacle, such as gladiatorial combats. This has been the, the position of the church from the very beginning. The church, as it came to be, or as it came um, to its cultural prominence in a place that, that had very violent spectacles, but of a real nature, not an imaginative ones, the church was always very um, clear that any such violence was absolutely out of the question you know take 2000 go 2000 years into the future and many christians use the same kind of logic to say that therefore you shouldn't watch anything on television even though it's not real that 
leap, by the way, of logic is one that is largely uh, unaccounted for in those that make these arguments, unfortunately. Because it's certainly true that there you will not find any writings in the early um, in the early theologians of the Christian Church that say that violent content, as expressed in, say, the Iliad, which is a frighteningly violent epic poem. I mean, there's all kinds of body parts falling off all over the place all the time. There's nothing to suggest in the early fathers that this was something that should be avoided. On the contrary, there were some fathers who said that you should read the works of the great masters for a variety of reasons, which I won't get into here. I talk about that sort of thing in my other podcast, In a Certain Kingdom, if you're interested in that. But in any case, be that as it may, there uh, this has given rise to a certain subculture that is particularly American as far as I can tell, and that is the subculture of clean of clean media. So this is the this is the uh, very interesting um, American um, what's the word I'm looking for? Good grief. <laughs> it's quite ridiculous phenomenon that's the word uh an american phenomenon where you have media that has come out or that's r-rated or that's sometimes even pg-13 rated and uh you have uh, companies that take out the objectionable material some of which is clearly objectionable some of which is you know arguably objectionable and then present that material in in dvd cds um vhs's to show my age uh that they then sell to those who want clean media. And there are all, there are all kinds of um, interesting lawsuits that came out because of that, uh, where the companies that, that created the IP uh, claimed copyright infringement. But that's interesting, but not, not the point that we're talking about here. What I'm talking about here is that what's interesting is that this clean media, the emergence of this clean media, has not done much to change the landscape, actually. Uh, even And even many Christians find that the denuded... Uh, reality of that when denuded of violence and rough language some stories actually lose their impact entirely they become as it were defanged unless you think that this is just uh, an apology for watching violence by somebody who likes to watch violence i don't particularly like to watch violence uh, i'm arguing that there's actually an opposite problem that has come about Imagine this, exposure to nothing but clean media does and can and has, I can speak from personal experience, uh, lead to profoundly disturbing experiences in real life. When you have your first encounter with real actual violence, whether it's physical, emotional, or spiritual is really beside the point. What ends up happening is you actually have no internal apparatus with which to deal with that thing that you see in front of you. And this can lead to a kind of paralysis it, that will that can do all kinds of things to a young mind disaffection depression and in some cases it can actually lead to violence so where are we then should we expose then ourselves to violent content on a kind of drip drip by drip basis or should we avoid it entirely is there an inherent danger to us in reading or seeing violent acts in an imaginative setting and where does fantasy fit in all this is this something that is extendable to all genres or does fantasy have a special thing to say about this subject you know, I found a really interesting answer to this, or the beginnings of an answer, uh, in the Massey lectures given by uh, Professor Northrop Fry for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in the 1960s. It's a radio broadcast. Uh, you can listen to it. You can hear the complete lectures on YouTube. They're fabulously grainy and old-fashioned. They are very, very interesting. 
Because here's what Fry has to say. This is his first point. The world of literature, he says, is a world where there is no reality except that of the human imagination. We see a great deal in it that reminds us vividly of the life that we know. But in that very vividness, there's something unreal. We can understand this more clearly with pictures, perhaps. There are trick pictures, trompe l'oeil, the French call them, where the resemblance to life is very strong. Now, this is important. The resemblance to life means that, li that literature has a direct effect on life. It's not something that's completely so divorced from life that it's useless or other. But the unreality of literature allows us to take a posture of distance where we can look, assess, something that we could not do if we were seeing or reading a news report. All right, he goes on. There are two halves to the literary to the literary experience. Imagination gives us both a better and a worse world than the one we usually live with and demands that we keep looking steadily at them both. The arts follow the path of the emotions and of the tendency of the emotions to separate the world into a half that we like and a half that we don't. Literature is not a world of dreams, but it would be if we had only one half without the other. If we had nothing but romances and comedies with happy endings, literature would express only a wish-fulfillment dream. Some people ask why poets want to write tragedies when the world's so full of them anyway, and suggest that enjoying such things has something morbid or gloating about it. It doesn't, but it might if there were nothing else in literature. This is a really, really interesting point. If you do nothing other than Expose yourself to the most pleasant kind of literary content. doesn't matter what genre it is at this point. You're actually doing yourself a disservice because you're, fooling, you're, you're denying yourself the opportunity of creatively encountering the full reality of what it means to be human in a way that will allow you to deal with it in a, way, in a place and a setting that is controlled and that is less dangerous than... It would be if you had to encounter it in real life. And I think all of us, just looking at the news regularly, will no longer try to say that, oh, we no longer live in a world where violence is likely in our daily life. Why should we read or watch intense, violent, dark stories when our lives are prosperous, when our lives are calm, when our lives in, a, in the modern 21st century uh, capitalist state are nothing but roses and soft beds. Well, I think these past few years have gotten rid of any sort of nonsense like that. So to say that out loud is important, to recognize that actually there might be, Northrop Fry suggesting, some utility in allowing for a certain measure of darkness in the diet of our stories, so that we are then able emotionally to to set up a framework, an internal framework with which to be able to deal with those things later on in real life. He goes on, and this is where it gets really, really interesting. This point is worth spending another minute on, he said. You recall that terrible scene in King Lear, where Gloucester's eyes are put out on the stage. It's, a, it's an eye-gouging scene, for those of you who don't know, and it's quite horrible. And I've seen several uh, stage versions of Lear, the fact that it's on a stage and there's no special effect doesn't change the horrific nature of the act, the horrific nature of the scene, the, and the dramatic 
horror that you encounter while watching it. And there was at least one show where I saw them doing it in such a way that really left very little to the imagination. Um, it's pretty impressive special effects, uh, even though they had no green screen. That's part of a play, continues Fry. And a play is supposed to be entertaining. Now, in what sense can a scene like that be entertaining? The fact that it's not really happening is certainly important. It would be degrading to watch a real blinding, and far more so degrading to get any pleasure out of watching it. Consequently, the entertainment doesn't consist in its reminding us of a real blinding scene. If it did, one of the great scenes of drama would turn into a piece of repulsive pornography. Note the connection again between violence and sexuality. We couldn't stop anyone from reacting in this way, and it certainly wouldn't cure him, much less help the public, to start blaming or censoring Shakespeare for putting sadistic ideas in his head. But a reaction of that kind has nothing to do with drama. For in a dramatic scene of cruelty and hatred, we're seeing cruelty and hatred, which we know are permanently real things in human life, but from the point of view of the imagination. All right, I'm going to dwell on this a little bit, but let's break it down. It is possible, Fry makes it very clear, it is possible for the presentation of violence in a creative, literary, imaginative fashion, it is possible for us to be susceptible to enjoy it. Fry is clear about it. But he's also clear that it's no different from watching pornography. It is very degrading. And more than that, it is dangerous. This is a very important point. And he says this without any access to neurobiological studies or anything like that. We have that information now. And as I often say, these kinds of studies do little more than illumine what we already know to be the truth from ancient wisdom and from the experience of being human it's clear that if you enjoy watching degrading violence on screen then actually that's not a good thing it's roughly the same thing as enjoying pornography like he said a reaction of that kind has nothing to do with drama in a dramatic scene of cruelty and hatred we're seeing cruelty and hatred which we know are permanent permanently real things in human life but from the point of view of the imagination so what the imagination suggests then is horror not the paralyzing sickening horror of a real blinding scene but an exuberant horror full of the energy of repudiation what a wonderful phrase that is the energy of repudiation this is as powerful a rendering fry concludes as we can ever get of life as we don't want it so there is immense power in what violence can do to a person who experiences it in an imaginative and Ill in a literary setting as long as it is not done in any way shape or form that is meant to titillate or tantalize or produce a sense of pleasure so any by definition any sort of revenge picture that really really um, focuses in on the acts of vengeance would fit into this structure of being beyond that exuberant horror had nothing to do, having have nothing to do with the energy of repudiation it should probably be avoided but before we get too abstract i want to talk specifically about how this refers or might refer to fantasy because it is true that seeing it on a stage that reading it in a book provides for a certain level of distance between the reader and the actual reality of what we are ex experiencing vicariously but add to that layer the the further buffer, the, the comforting and pleasant buffer of having it in a setting that is not 
like the real world, that is intentionally different, that is fantastical in its very nature. And something additional happens. Fry doesn't talk about this because he doesn't make the distinction between different genres of literature. But I am, and I certainly am suggesting that what what Fry says is made more powerful by the fact that fantasy in its pure form, as Tolkien would have it, already gives us a kind of special prism through which to view the events in a way that allows us to extrapolate on the level of the heart and the emotions to back towards our regular everyday life even without violence so add the element of violence to the to the already sort of therapeutic or consoling um, element of fantasy fiction and you get something that's very interesting it's also something that can be potentially dangerous because in that um in that setting, that setting that is therapeutic, if you inject that level of pleasurable violence that Fry calls pornographic, you're giving yourself even more reason to become degraded. Because fantasy, as as I've argued in a lot of places, naturally tends to, to uh, invite the reader deeper into the reality that he experiences then uh, much deeper than a realistic fiction so i wanted to give you a few examples of the kind of violence that we have seen and have encountered in recent fantasy media and to see if it's possible to really distinguish on a more general scale what might be a violence that gives the reader the energy of repudiation from the violence that gives him titillation. I understand that this will probably depend also largely on individual tastes and on individual tolerances. But I think too much is made of that point in general. I do think there can be made a general point about what is powerful and what is not about violence in media. Let's see if we can get there. I'm not sure if I'll be able to convince you or myself even in what I'm saying here, but let's give it a shot. The thing that jumps out to me immediately in discussing this kind of thing is, of course, Game of Thrones. I've mentioned before that it seemed to me when I first read uh, the first book, A Game of Thrones, that the violence in it, though intense, was in a lot of ways, to me, not of the titill titillating kind. And there's one, in, one scene in particular that I remember being actually quite affecting, not, in a, not necessarily in a positive way, but certainly in a, in a way that gave me a strong, exuberant horror and an energy of repudiation. I, something that, tells, that made me think inside, I would never allow for this to stand which is, I think, the point of such scenes. And that's the, the horse-killing scene after the joust in book one. It's really interesting how uh, George R. R. Martin goes to elaborate um, effect to create a sense in Sansa Stark's eyes of this joust being um, a um, manifestation of all of her dreams about what chivalry must actually be and of course the fact that that it is that the uh, the paragon of all of this is um the night of the flowers is ironic and interesting 
she doesn't know the reality of who he is. Uh, she doesn't really understand what the what the underlying reality of the entire charade is. But since we are seeing things through her eyes, we see this flower-strewn reality. We see this young, uh, chivalrous knight handing out flowers to young ladies. Exactly the kind of thing you would read in a in a childish, in a good sense, childish, in a children's book of uh, Arthur and his um, and the adventures of his knights. And then we have this very um, shocking reality of the mountain hacking the head off his horse after the horse uh, causes him to lose in the joust. A scene that is given just as much uh, detail as the descriptions of flowers in the previous scene. The contrast is intentional. George Martin is making a point. The point that he's making is uh, as stretched out over the entirety of the books. We don't really know what it is, but we can tell based on the kinds of things that he says. It is a rather nihilistic one. And still, in spite of the fact that his overall worldview is nihilistic, I actually found that scene to be a positive one in the sense that he is very honest about the excesses of a chivalry that is not tempered by a proper faith. I mean, this was the whole point of chivalry in the medieval times, right? Chivalry was there. All of the rituals, all of the acts, all of the complicated gestures and all that, it was all put there by the church to soften the violent and barbaric impulses in a society of feudalism. Now, that's that influence from above is not present in, in a Game of Thrones because there is no church, not really. Not in the medieval sense. There is an institution, but it is corrupt, and everybody knows that it is corrupt. That would not have been the case with the, with the common experience of the church in the Middle Ages. Yes, it was corrupt, but the average person's experience of the church would not have been, oh, those corrupt priests, they are all lying to us. That is a modern person's experience of the church. So, all that to say, uncovering the dark side of chivalry, by uncovering the dark side of chivalry, what I think Martin is actually doing is uncovering the dark side of modernity. Because it's just play-acting. The way he's describing the Middle Ages, yes, all these things actually did happen. There were dark, dark things that happened in the history of England during the Wars of the Roses. But it wasn't all unmitigated bad, right? And so in this way, what it actually does is shines a light, a very clear light, because it makes clear what is good and what is not. And the violence that you see disgusts you. There's nothing pleasurable about it, about hacking off a horse's head. So you step away from it and you give it that energy of repudiation that is that Fry so strongly talks about. But things get more complicated later on in the series. And now I'm going to talk more about the show than the books because some of this has been written, some of it hasn't. But the torture of the evil Septa in the in the I think uh, season seven, and a lot of similar things such as the death of uh, of um, Ramsay Bolton. Those scenes are played so that the viewer will get pleasure from it. It's very clear. And it's very difficult to avoid having that pleasure because those characters are so horrifying and they're so awful. And to see them get their comeuppance might give you a sense 
that, oh, I am, I am given an energy of repudiation. I am repudiating this kind of character. But that is not what's going on. Because the energy of repudiation that he's talking about is not an energy that is directed at a person. It is an energy that is directed at an act, at a moral state. And it does not include in it a condemnation of a person. It might include a condemnation of a person, but not, not, a, not in the sense that you would enjoy seeing that person punished. That is already part of that degrading pornographical nature of, of violence. And that's and something similar happens also in Circe's Walk of Shame. Now, Circe's Walk of Shame, I find to be even worse than, than some of these uh, torture and death scenes that happen late in, the, late in the show. Because Circe is a horrifying person. Everybody knows it. But her Walk of Shame is played simultaneously for the viewer's titillation at seeing somebody as awful as Circe punished. But it's also played in such a way that is meant to arouse not compassion, but certainly pity at her suffering. So you simultaneously get two energies, in a sense, to, to use Fry's term, arising at the same time inside the viewer. And it causes a lot of confusion. It makes for a very uncomfortable viewing experience. That, of course, is part of what Game of Thrones is all about. Not the movie, not the movie series, but the book series about questioning um, clear moral uh, categories and suggesting that being stuck in the mighty middle, confused between what might be right and what might not be right, is actually the more human way of living. Something that I find to be rather awful. So part of the failure of, of A Game of Thrones or Song of, of, Song of Ice and Fire as a, as a series of books is that there were more such energy of repudiation kind of scenes of violence in the first book than there were in all the rest of the books. The rest of the books and, the, and then the show after it seem to allow for a kind of energy of titillation into the whole thing that makes the whole a very um, disturbing experience, that one, one that certainly is not particularly pleasant and might not even be very good for you. Another... Um, scene that I immediately thought of when thinking about what is potentially objectionable in some sense um, in terms of violence in media is the famous uh, meat grinder scene in, in Invincible. Now Invincible, I'm talking about the Amazon <clears throat> Prime uh, animated series. This would be the last episode of the first season where Omni-Man is trying to teach his son the reality of the universe. And that the universe is all about asserting power over those who are weaker than you, and that if you want to be among the weaklings, then you are nothing more than a bag of bones and flesh. Something that uh, Omni Man uh, demonstrates in an hor in a horrifying scene um, that uh, I think everybody who watches cringes at. Now it's animated, so the violence is less visceral. It's somehow more receptive to the human eye. But it's horrifying and it's quite awful. Does it have the energy of repudiation? Yes, I think it does. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that people watch Invincible. But if people have a strong stomach and people appreciate art in the 
pop sense that tries to uh, ask difficult questions about what it means to be human. Doesn't answer them very well. That's a different episode though. But at least it asks them what it means to be human and what is the importance of family, of power, of love, of domination. What are the things that, what are the forces that actually run the universe? Those are important questions. And in that sense, that scene is important. That scene is visceral. That scene gives you a very strong energy of repudiation. Would I watch it again? No, <laughs> definitely not. Now, it, taking that a step further, absolutely anything in that same sort of genre of comics that takes it even further, something like The Boys. Now, I haven't watched The Boys. I've watched only about five minutes of it, and it was enough to absolutely make it clear that this is going to be something where the violence is played not only for titillation, but also for laughs. Now, the laughs make the titillation something that uh, seems forgivable, which is ma which makes it even worse. So if you have a scene of violence that is clearly titillating, and I've read about some of the things that happens in The Boys, that is violence that is directly related to uh, to sexuality, which is quite in quite horrifying and disgusting ways. Um, but that is bad enough there's all but add to that the softening effect of laughter which makes it feel like what you're seeing because you're laughing at it is not as important as it might be if you weren't that makes it even worse the whole thing is a big joke the whole thing is something that's not important and yet the whole thing enters into you the whole thing gives you a certain energy and that energy is not one of repudiation it's certainly not one that is going to ever do you any good honestly if the boy has disappeared and we never saw any more episodes of it again, I think the world would be a much better place. And the same same thing is this the same is true, I think, of any trauma adjacent stuff like Suicide Squad. Um I like I said, I watched five minutes of Suicide Squad and it was enough for me to see that the violence there was not intended to create an energy of repudiation. It was not intended to uh, create a horror of what was going on. It was intended to do the opposite. It was intended for you to look and look with um, pleasure at the spectacle in front of your eyes exactly the kind of things that the romans did with the gladiators perhaps the most difficult kind of violence that might be the best for you in some sense if i can talk if i can even say it that way is something like the very intense and very violent scene of, of the torture of poxenarian in the wonderful series the deed of poxenarian I'm not going to read it. It's quite explicit. Um, it's quite awful. But in the proper context of that story, what that torture scene does is something incredible. Because not only does it give you a very strong horror of the reality of what's going on, a horror of the act that is being perpetrated on an innocent woman, not only does it give you that a very strong energy of repudiation, as Fry would have it, but it also puts that kind of suffering into a framework that allows for it to do something more than simply be there as a cautionary tale for us and for the characters in the story. Because the torture of Poxenarian is transformative. It Because it is a free sacrifice of her own, it allows for her to actually to encounter you catastrophe in the in the Tolkienian sense. Again, I'm not going to get into the details of that. If you are interested in a very good classic fantasy series that doesn't shy away from violence but never um, titillates and really has some wonderful things to say about what it what heroism is, 
about what bravery is, about what love is, and about what evil truly is, read The Deed of Paxanari, and it's a very good uh, series. It's a bit old, uh, a bit dated for modern tastes, but um, once you get into it, it's hard to put it down. So that's really where I wanted to end, because that fantasy representation of a transformative set of sufferings shows us that, uh, that it is actually possible for fantasy literature in its best manifestations to reach towards, to point towards um, a, a genre that's not literature at all. That's the genre of the life of the martyr, the martyr, which used to be a genre that was um, a genre of inspirational literature, believe it or not. Um, that genre never shied away from violence. It was quite clear and explicit in its descriptions of violence, but not only because it gave a strong energy of repudiation to the listener, but because it confirmed the listener in the reality of that violence being a vehicle towards its own ultimate defeat, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing and something that fantasy can do if it strives to. That energy of repudiation that eventually shows the reader that it is possible for the world itself, the real world, to provide a possible reality of transformation even through the horror of suffering. So that's what I wanted to leave you with today. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to delve more deeply into this topic, check out my audio series on stories that unite in dark times available exclusively at nicholaskotar.com forward slash stories that unite. And if you're hankering for more fantasy stories, check out my own Raven Sun epic fantasy series inspired by Russian fairy tales, available now in audio, paperback, and ebook formats. This show is produced by the wonderful Derek Cummins, and the beautiful title music is Lighthouse in the Rain, originally composed by Velislava Franta. You can find her work on SoundCloud.